Oh, it is so true, Father, that nothing compares <coughs> to the promise that we have in you. We want to put the focus on you this morning. So please strengthen me to preach the word of God, to encourage your church. Because it is all about you and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So take a seat. I want to talk about, begin with, um, talk to you talking about homes. This is a, and Eric, you can check this or not. Yeah. <clears throat> um, they originally even had the prices up there, like, remember, I thought, well, it, it's, let's just say, when I put the prices up there and I look at the prices of homes now compared to back then. For example, if I remember correctly, this is uh, 913 Parker Street. It was our first house. We had just, we got married in 1994. We did our fundraising for our ministry. And through the help of my parents, we were able to buy this house. It was like 1903 or 1913 or something like that. This old 900-square-foot house was built. It was right next to... Uh, anyways, it's 325 Prospect Street. It's 913 Parker Street. Anyways, anyways... That I do know for a fact. Uh, um, there's a hospital right next to it. And what stands out to me about that house, other than of our first home, I remember when we bought the home, I was like, the first time you buy a home, like you see a, it was this concrete step. And I was like, that's actually my step. You know, the first time I ever owned anything like in terms of a home. I mentioned the hospital because it was there in this home. And I think we were only there two years. My mom was visiting, and she slipped and fell, and on her way down to the <clears throat> catch herself, she put her hand down like that, and she broke her wrist. And I just made a phone call to the hospital, and the doctor just walked right over <laughs> into our living room and looked at her and, and everything. And so <clears throat> we were there for two years, and I think, you know, I know that someone knows, but do you know what we paid for this house back then? 900 square feet. No, it was $84,000, if I remember correctly, okay? <clears throat> and we saw this house, first of all, with a, obviously through a realtor. Then we bought the home of our campus director, and that's when we started a family. Uh, that welcomed Jacob and Mark, if I remember correctly, am I right? And that right around this time frame, we moved into this bigger home. And again, this home we already knew. This home, we, we drove by and saw it and looked at the outside and then looked into windows inside and went to a realtor and looked in inside and got everything. Uh, this was a huge home, which we used for ministry. My favorite home that we've owned so far. Um, just built in 1897 in a corner lot with this woodworking and stuff like that that would just be, you just don't find anymore. Um, I don't know. It was close to 4,000 square feet. You had the attic. Okay. Um, two stairways going upstairs, just elegant very, very nice. And it had just been redone uh, by this Christian couple before that. Then we moved to Ohio, uh, or to, to, from Bowling Green to Concord, Ohio, and then bought this house. Um, and then from there to Indiana, and then, of course, here. And you know, if I were to put up the price of this home back in 2017 to all these other homes, massive uptick in price, to say the least, okay? These homes were in the $200,000 range, all these. Okay, or, or below. This one, <laughs> yeah. 
way, way more expensive. Now, my point being sharing all this with you is it was this home right here where we first looked at a home on the internet. Because in 95 is roughly when the internet was invented. And there were, these really weren't those internet sites, realtor.com, Zill didn't exist. You know, these were all realtors took us through these homes, if I remember correctly. Um, we actually had printouts of, of, of this home we were looking at it when we came over to visit. Um, but when you buy a home, especially back then and even um, today, you don't go first to a realtor anymore, do you? Usually you call a realtor or you drive by the home, you see it, you see the exterior, you maybe peek through the windows. Today you can look online and see everything, right? And then you actually go see the home, and oftentimes the way they stage homes and what you see online and what it actually is can be very different, right? Right. Well, as we close this, this what the Bible says about series, finally, this is the last sermon, because <clears throat> we've come to the end of the Bible. In a similar sense, uh, the angel that has been with John is taking John out to look at his future home. He's on a home tour. He's seen the exterior of his home, and now the angel's about to show him the interior. And the first thing we notice when we first enter a new home is what? It's the entrance. It's the size of the entrance. Is it a cramped entrance? Is it an open entrance? All of that. But that's not what John sees. And so turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, and we'll get through these verses here this morning. Because the very first thing that John sees is, I saw no temple in it. We talk about first things first and first impressions, and the very first thing that John notices in his future home is there's no temple. And it's interesting that John notices this when he first sees the interior of this city. There's no temple in it. And why would that stand out to him? Well, he, obviously, John was a God-fearing Jew, a committed follower of Jesus Christ. John knew that there was a temple in the current heaven or the intermediate heaven. He would have been familiar with this. Right now, when you die, okay, before the Lord returns, if you die, your body goes to the ground, your spirit goes to be with God in heaven. And where is God? In heaven, in city, and there's a temple there. Okay? There's a temple there. How do I know that? Well, they talked about it in the Old Testament, and they also talked about it here. John actually saw this. Okay? The temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. So there's a temple in heaven right now. But in the eternal state, there is no temple. I didn't catch that until I started studying this. Well, why? Well, look at the rest of verse 22. <clears throat> For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And this is significant because this means there is no need for a cathedral, a chapel, a house of prayer, or a place of worship. There won't be any place in this New Jerusalem, the holy city, 
where they will be having worship services. In fact, there is no need for anyone to go anywhere to worship because the city dwells within the temple, which is the very presence of God in Christ. Do you understand that? It's hard to understand. Okay, I had to wrap my brain around it. This city dwells within the very presence of God in the tabernacle of God. Okay? This is why I believe God will literally occupy by blazing glory the whole of the new heaven and the new earth with all of his infinity. God himself is the temple in which everything exists. And this is what is met uh, by this. I think I put this verse up here, did I not? Yeah. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. We will literally live in his presence. And since we are always in his presence, worship, okay, will be life. Worship will be life. There will never be a moment without perfect, rapturous, joyous worship all the time. Think about that for a moment. Well, how can I say that? Well, let me give you two reasons. Well, throughout Revelation, John had seen glimpses of heaven where worship was the constant occupation. Do you guys remember this by chance? Look at this for a moment. What are these elders doing forever and ever? Yes, and they're worshiping him forever and ever. This is what we will always be doing, worshiping God forever and ever. Now, the second reason I believe that God's presence is, fills the new heavens and the new earth, we will always be in his presence, we will always be worshiping him, is that when John, the Apostle John, wrote this, do you remember this? What is coming? It is now, but what is also coming in its real fullness? Worshippers, true worshipers doing what? Worshiping the Father in spirit and truth. So in the new heaven and the new earth, in the capital city of the new Jerusalem, we will find the fulfillment of this promise. The true worshipers of God, the true worshipers that God seeks, will forever be worshiping him. And so if you think about this for a moment, it's very natural that the first thing John looked for when he was taken to the inside of the capital city of heaven was a place of worship. Because that's what he grew up with. That's what life was about even on this planet at this time. But he discovered it doesn't exist because there won't be anything but worship in the new Jerusalem. We will worship him. Look at verse 23, Revelation 21, 23. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. So John doesn't see a temple, but the very next thing his eyes are drawn to, which would make sense, is the very glory of God. The most distinguishing characteristic of this city, of our home, of the Father's house, the glory of God. And here we learn something new about this new heaven and a new earth that makes it different from the original heaven and earth, and there is, there is no sun or moon. Now, the earth as we know it depends on what? A cycle 
upon the sun and moon running its normal cycles, right? But the new creation has no need for the sun or the moon for light because the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, I know that there may be some of you that are thinking, well, that's just talking about the city because the text says it's the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. But it doesn't mean there is no sun or moon in the entire new heaven and the new earth. Okay? Well, let's jump ahead to Revelation 22.5, since you're right there. <clears throat> Again, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have the need of light of the lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Again, imagine this. There is no longer any night. And I believe this applies to the entire new heaven and new earth, not just the capital city of Jerusalem. Think about it. How could there be no night in the capital city, but everywhere else in the new heaven and new earth, there is a night and a day? But even more important, the glory of God illumines everything in the city. Remember that from Revelation 21, 23, everything. And what is the city from the description we just went over last week? A giant, perfect diamond gem that is clear as crystal. There are all those other 12 stones that are there, okay? There's those golden streets that are translucent, and the glory of God in the center, and it's just radiating through everything, filling the city, and I think filling the entire universe, the new heaven and the new earth, okay? But... If you look at verse 5, it says, because the Lord God will illumine them. Who is the them there in verse 5? That is us. So everything in the city is illuminated by the radiating light of the glory of God. We also are illumined, lit up by the glory of God. Now here's the text says that the glory of the children of God will that the glory of God will illumine his children. Let me explain to you what I think that means. Obviously, we're going to have glorified bodies like the glorified body of Jesus Christ. Remember this verse? We will be like him. See that? When he appears, we will be like him. When he appears, is referring to what? His second coming. And those of us who will be with him, we will be like him. We'll have that, that glorified body that he has, Okay? Now, the disciples saw a glimpse of Jesus in his transfigured state. You remember this? Remember that? Okay, and that is, he was transfigured before them, and his face, what? Shone like the sun. Why? Well, that's who he is in his unveiled form, but that is what we call the light of the glory of God, or the Shekinah glory. That's his glory. And again, God is invisible, he's spirit, and the only way we can see him is if he clothes himself in light, okay? Now the question is, does this mean that we too in our glorified bodies will shine like Jesus? And I think so, okay? Look at this verse here. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you what? Shine like the stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Now, right now, in our current fallen condition, um, believe it or not, 
you're a believer, the life of God is within you. Even the glory of God is within you. You are the light of the world, right? But it's veiled through our sin. But in holding out the word of life, living a holy, blameless, pure life in this world, we can, in a partial sense, shine like the stars in the heavens. I find it interesting that uh, the word for light in Matthew 17, 2, and in this verse here, Philippians 2, 5, it's the same word. So we are to shine like the stars in the universe, like the glory of God in this life. And how much more will we shine like the light of the glory of God in our sinless, glorified bodies in the eternal state? With his unhindered glory radiating through us all the time. We will forever be in his presence. You will be forever, may I say the phrase, lit up. <laughs> Full of light. God's glory radiates through the holy city of Jerusalem, filling the entire universe with his glory, and his glory illumines us so we shine like the glory of God. I think just like Jesus shines like the glory of God because of a body like his. And because of this, forever we will shine like the glory of God. Forever we will glorify God. Isn't that the sole purpose of man? And because of that, there is no need in the new heaven and new earth for a sun or a moon. There is no night. You are the source of the light because it's God is the source of light, always shining through you, through me. You will never be in darkness. You will never need light. And to say that there's still a sun and the moon and the new heaven and the new earth is to say that God's glory will not illumine us when we are outside the city. Because his glory does not extend past the city, and that simply isn't true. Even right now, the glory of God fills the earth. The stars, the heavens proclaim his glory. And surely, the glory of God fills the entire new heaven in the new earth. Now look at verses 24 through 26 of Revelation 21. It says, The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Now the word nations here, because this is confusing, <clears throat> it just refers to, it's the word ethnic or ethnic all peoples from every tongue and tribe in the world. That's the simplest way to explain that. And they're all going to be walking by the light of the glory of God. <clears throat> this, I believe, is here because there are no limitations or divisions in heaven. There's no divisions by sex or race or politics. Everyone is welcome in the capital city. Everyone is the same. <clears throat> all ethnic groups will be moving in and out and about that city. And the phrase, the king is the earth, most likely refers to leaders or generals. And what do they do? They bring what into the city? Their glory. See that? Well, why? Why would they do that? They give up their glory to God. The implication here is that there is no social structure. There's no upper or lower class. For even the kings bring their glory and honor into this city 
where all human glory and honor dissolves into the glory of God. Because you do have an honor. They're called rewards. And what do we do with those rewards when we're in his presence? You cast them at his feet. Everybody does. Whether you're a king or a great man or a small man, it's not about you. It's about the glory of God. But see, not only the kings of the earth bring their glory, but everybody brings their glory. In verse 26, it uses the word they, and it refers to all of us. All human glory and honor dissipates into the glory of God as we worship him. And this tells us something about our eternal rewards. We're giving them so we can give them back to God for the sake of his glory. I mean, think about it. Whatever we did for Christ in this life was a work of the Spirit of God, right? The eternal rewards that we receive, our glory, we give back to God so God is all in all, as it should be. Amen? Now, verse 25 reminds us, again, there's no light. It's always daytime. And this is why the gates will never be closed. And the significance of this is grasped when you understand cities and gates from the perspective of the ancient world. I mean, even today, if you look over there, you'll see a neighbor across the street. He's got a gate and a fence. Why? <clears throat> keep his dogs in. <laughs> he has a lot of dogs. Okay, and also to keep people out. All right? Well, the ancient world cities were walled. Remember Jericho? With gates that opened during the day and closed at night to keep criminals and enemies from entering the city. But this city is different. There's never any night, so the gates never have to close. So it's a place of safety and refreshment, which leads to this exciting possibility. Since we have a glorified body that is not subject to decay and live in a place where there is no night, we have entered into what is called this. Eternal rest. Rest. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, it's the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors. For their deeds follow with them. So heaven is eternal rest. Now you're considering all these three points. A glorified body in a place where there is no night and where we are eternally refreshed as we rest I think that means that nobody will sleep in heaven. You won't need to. This is one thing that makes heaven unique and remarkable. And it also contrasts this verse here. Think about this for a moment. Heaven is a place of rest. Hell is the opposite. There is no rest. Think about that, day or night. We've talked about this in Sunday school that all of us at some point in time, I mean, sometimes we wake up refreshed, have energy, ready to go, and as the day goes on, we get tired, and then we, we go back to bed, and that's our cycle, right? Have you ever woken up tired? Yeah? Okay. Can you imagine if that was your eternal state? 
always tired. You and I are tired. We need rest. In this world, we can still find some rest, right? There's a place that we go. It's called a bedroom. We have a bed, and we turn off the lights, and we sleep, and we get refreshment, and we get rest. Think about that. There is no rest for those separated from God. Think of the torment. I just need to sit down and catch my breath. No, not there. No rest. Struggle. Constant struggle. Constant pain. Constant torment. And that's just contrasted with heaven, where there is rest. And so far we've seen that the new Jerusalem, it's a shining city. It has the glory of God at its center. And all the glory of all the people who've ever received from God honor and glory are there. And this glory is absorbed into the glory of God. And it's creating, I think, breathtaking glory that blazes everywhere. It is this glory above everything else that describes this city. It's all about the glory of God, but there is more. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 22. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. <clears throat> On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Let me just remind you once again that everything in this new Jerusalem, notice it's clear as crystal. It's translucent gold. It's clear diamonds. It's clear so the glory of God can shine through it. Now, based upon passages from John chapter 4 and John chapter 7 about the rivers of the living water flowing through us, I believe, as most do believe, that this reference to the river of the water of life is a reference to eternal life. Okay? This is not actual water, but a reference to eternal life. A beautiful, crystal clear, celestial, heavenly river of eternal life that bathes the holy city as it flows down from the throne of God. It is a constant, it is a symbol of the constant flow of everlasting life from God's throne to all the people in glory. I mean, picture that. Cascading down from the throne of God is crystal clear, shining eternal life in the appearance of water, flashing the beautiful brilliance of the glory of God. On either side of the, the street, it's actually should be translated path, was the tree of life. Again, another symbol, this time referring to blessing. Now, let me explain this to you. Why is a tree of life symbolized as a blessing? Well, where's the first tree of life mentioned in the Bible? Garden of Eden uh, in Genesis, exactly. Two, in Genesis 2, verse 9. <clears throat> that was a symbol also of eternal life and blessing. It was a tree rooted in soil in the Garden of Eden, but this tree is different. It's not a tree of the created order of this earth. It's a celestial tree. It symbolizes the unbelievable, glorious, eternal life we're living in the innumerable blessings that accompany this life. 
Part of the innumerable blessings that stem from the tree of life is variety. There are 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit every month. This is a picture of regular cycle of joyous provision filled with variety changing all the time. And then I want to add this, that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Healing from what, right? Remember, think about that. Healing from what? I mean, there is no more illness, no more pain, no more disease. Well, this is where you've got to do your work. But the word healing is the Greek word therapeen, which, of course, we get the word therapeutic. It doesn't imply illness. A better way to translate it would be this. In the leaves of the tree, now listen to this, enriched life. Enriched life. There's going to be provided in heaven infinite, infinite variety, symbolized by the leaves of that tree that are going to energize life and make it rich and full and exciting. There's going to be endless variety and a constant infusing of great, exhilarating joy. In a way, it's similar to dating and marriage. Okay? Hang on with me here for a moment. Do you remember when you first met your spouse? I guess people don't want that memory. Those must have been good memories. Okay, do you remember? Okay, when I ask a question, that usually means there's a response from you guys, okay? All right, that's how communication works, all right? So, anyways, okay, so you first met your spouse, okay? And everything was fresh and exciting, wasn't it? What do we call that love? It's not real love, but really what it's called? Puppy love or infatuated love, okay? Do you remember when you first, um, maybe every date you experienced something new and learned something new about your, your spouse or future spouse, and you just fell deeper and deeper in love with your spouse? And then you get married and you are together all the time, and you experience even more of the uniqueness and newness of your spouse. Okay? Now, unfortunately, familiarity can also breed what? Contempt. And then the sinful nature kicks in, and all of a sudden, this person who is so exciting and fresh and new, you never want to see them again. Right? The luster wears off. But that doesn't happen in heaven. Think about that time that your spouse could do nothing wrong and you just were amazed at him or her. You know what I'm talking about? You, you, there's, you, you can't find a fault in this person, okay? I know you're naive and stupid like we all are, okay? But you remember the, the, the excitement and the joy? Remember that? That's heaven all the time, okay? There's always be something new. There'll always be variety. Always be learning. Always be full of joy. Always loving to the fullest extent, okay? That's life on the new heaven and the new earth. Now in this sermon, we've taken a look at the interior of the holy city, and John now transitions uh, to the quality of life we'll experience. Look at verses three and five. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve them, will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. 
and there will no longer be any night. Again, it keeps repeating this. There's no night, there's no night, there's no night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them. We went through this and they will reign forever and ever. I mean, think about this, no longer any curse. The first thing that happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned was what? Entropy, decay. They immediately started to die. Okay? Remember I told you, we can look at DNA now, our science and technology and so on, that the moment that you're born, what happens? You immediately start to die. Well, that curse is gone. No longer any curse. No more tears. No more death. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. All those things fit in the category of things that have passed away forever. The throne of God and of the Lamb is there. It's described in Revelation 4, 5 through 11. But there is continual praise and worship of God on the throne in all his glory. All who are before him give him glory and honor and thanks as they cast their crowns before him. And we, his bondservants, it says, serve him. Well, how do we serve him? Well, I think we're just going to do whatever he wishes. If you consider the infinite mind of God in his unlimited creativity, then it'll be exciting to serve him in all the ways that he desires that are beyond our ability to even comprehend. Now, Revelation does provide us with some insight about our service to him in the new heaven and new earth. And it speaks of the saints of the great tribulation now in heaven. Look at this. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. This is interesting because it says what? They will serve him day in, but there is no night, right? So this is obviously a reference, we think, to a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. That being said, again, this is why there's no need for a temple in the new heaven and new earth. He's going to spread, and this is a key point I want you to see, spread his tabernacle over them. He's going to spread his tabernacle, he's with us, over all of us. Mean the whole of the new heaven and new earth becomes his tabernacle. We serve him in that tabernacle forever in his presence. But there's something else that I want to share with you, I think, that may just blow your mind away. It's absolutely mind boggling about serving in heaven. Look at this. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you, what? He will do what? Yeah, gird himself to what? Serve. And have them, who's the them? That's the blessed, those are the slaves that are faithful. The slaves, that's us, the bondservants, recline at the table and he will come up and wait on us. That's hard to comprehend, isn't it? So not only are we going to serve him, but he's going to serve us. That is just unbelievable. Beyond serving him, we'll see his face, meaning we'll experience unparalleled intimate fellowship with him. 
beyond anything we could ever experience this side of heaven. And the best part is we will always have that special relationship with him because he owns us. It says his name is written on our foreheads. We belong to him, and we belong to the Lamb, and we belong to the city as an eternal citizen. So serving him and intimately fellowshipping with him, but also, it says, reigning with him forever and ever. Now watch this. Where will we reign? And this, too, is mind-boggling. Where will we reign with him? What does it say? On his throne with him reigning. Which throne is that? It's at the right hand of God. When Jesus humbled himself and became a man and submitted to death, God raised him up in power and exalted him to the right hand of the throne of God where he now sits in glory. Jesus, and this is unbelievable, shares that glory with us by allowing us to sit with him on his throne and reign forever, and now combine it all, we'll be reigning, and he'll be serving us. As he is reigning, and we are serving him. It's just unbelievable that we could attain to that glory. That is grace, people. That is what your destiny is. That is just part of the glory that you share, that you take as his glory radiates through you and puts the spotlight on him where it always should be. And so I'm just giving you a sampling of what awaits us. Sadly, it is not for everybody. Look at verse 27, chapter 21. Nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying should ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You, so you want to prove your saving faith by living a holy life that is pleasing to God. And if you can do so, you can rest assured that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. The only book where your name needs to be, the only book that matters, it's that book. Because that really is the last words of God to us in Revelation chapter 22. Because verses 6 through 21 of chapter 22 are really nothing but invitations to two sets of people. In light of Jesus' imminent return, believers are to continue in obedience, worship, proclamation, and service. Unbelievers are to come to him by faith, thirsting for the waters of eternal life, which he gives without cost. That's how the book ends. But let's close with this. We have spent several months uh, looking at eschatology, the study of the end times. I hope you've had your eyes opened as to what he has prepared for us. And folks, it is amazing. But it is still just a fraction, I believe, of what he has prepared. Do you remember this? Paul wrote this, or quoted this, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard. So there are other things that we don't know. We only know what has been revealed to us. There is more, okay? There is more. In fact, it hasn't even entered the heart of man. 
we can't even think about what all that God has prepared for those who love them. There is so much more, which is why there's so much incredible variety. That is hope. That is a future. And that is your birthright. That is your inheritance. It is not for everybody. You should feel special. Blessed, grateful, thankful. The chief end of man is to glorify God. Right? And it's what we will be doing all the time as his glory radiates through us in the new heaven and the new earth. And so, obviously, we're going to worship him. So I want you to stand with me. This is an old song, but it fits perfectly. You'll recognize it. And we can get that song ready to go, David or Frank. And so as I pray, we'll go right into it. It's called, I says it, In My Life, Lord, Be Glorified. Remember that song? You should know it. And this is what we're going to be doing. And so we can practice now. Make that the desire of your heart, that God be glorified. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's close the song.